Welcome to The Art of Selling Wine, the podcast for wine professionals and professional wine nerds. And today, maybe it's a little bit for the latter ones, because I'm talking to Francois Odus. He has this very interesting career of hosting wine dinners um, around very, very aged wines. And this episode was recorded quite a while ago when I was visiting the French region of Ardèche and the Cévennes. And we had this nice conversation about the value of enjoying aged wines. Welcome to the art of selling wine. In this podcast, we explore the foundation of business success in the wine industry. And we also take a look at global game changers, such as changing climatic conditions, changing customer behavior and demands, emerging and fading distribution channels, and many topics alike that affect winemakers everywhere. My goal is to collect regional answers and strategies and spread the ideas worldwide. My name is Diego. I'm a wine marketing consultant specialized in the strategic brand positioning of small and medium-sized family wineries. I have a background as trained winemaker in Rheingau area Germany and a degree in international wine business. This podcast is my contribution to the wine sector that I love so much. Enjoy it in the vineyards or in the cellar or while traveling as winemaker or sommelier and don't hesitate to contact me. You are listening to The Art of Selling Wine, the podcast for wine professionals. This episode is presented to you by WinePlus. WinePlus is a German-based platform for wine professionals from all around the world. It is written W-E-I-N dot plus, W-E-I-N dot plus. And all the episodes of The Art of Selling Wine and my German podcast, Wein Verkauft, are available in early access for the WinePlus members. It's a free membership, so you don't have to pay and you get two weeks early access to any episode. The Bordeaux series is also powered by Amorim Kork. Amorim Kork is partner of my German podcast and therefore they enabled me to do this whole endeavor in Bordeaux. And if you are currently looking for a new supplier of high quality cork, I recommend taking a look at Amorim Cork. And if you understand German, I also provide a nice German episode. I think it's number 62 with Gerd Reis. He's the CEO of the Northern European division of Amorim Cork. And we talk about the renaissance of cork and the future of closing, closing systems for wine bottles. This whole series, the Bordeaux series, was made possible by a German company called Euramobil, Euramobile, you would pronounce it in English. They produce high-quality mobile homes and they provided me, meaning my wife and me, with a mobile home just for the trip to Bordeaux. And if you are interested in these kinds of things, I highly recommend going to The Art of Selling Wine episodes 4, maybe 5, and taking a look at our travel diary. In that episode, we talk about all the funny things we <laughs> got to see and uh, got to do in Bordeaux and all the accidents we had. And also, I give you a brief overview about the mobile home we were in and how living and working in a mobile home actually turned out to be. 
Additional partner for the French series is vitisphere.com. Whenever you want to find out about what's going on in French wine business, I highly recommend visiting Vitisphere. They are very helpful to our industry in France. The Bordeaux episodes were also supported by Bordeaux.com. It's the website of the Bordeaux Wine Growers Association, CIVB, and they supported me with giving me access to many, many, many of the interview partners that you are going to get to know in the following episodes. My guest today is uh, François Audouze, and he is uh, widely known as one of the persons who drank a few of the oldest wines in the world. But uh, it's better if you introduce yourself, François. Uh, please tell us about your passion for wine. Hello. So my passion for wine began in 1970. And uh, for old wines, it began in 1975 when I had an emotion with a Chateau Clemence 1923, which was so impressive and so more complex than any other wine that I decided that I would uh, concentrate on old wines and try to learn and try to drink as many old wine that I could. So, and uh, I've had the chance that uh, in uh, 50 years of, uh, uh, of collecting, I've drank, uh, it is true, extremely rare and old wines uh, because it is my passion. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, tell us some names? Like what are the most extraordinary wines you had access to? So the, the oldest that I have drunk is a bottle that we have decided to name from 1690 because of the period in which the, the type of glass was used. Because on that bottle there was absolutely no label, no indication. So we dated by the period in which such a glass of uh, bottle was used. And uh, it is the, the oldest one. And of course, it, it was more a memory of wine than a real, uh, but it was drinkable. And it was such an emotion because uh, imagine of the 17th century, it is uh, something incredible. The, the, the oldest really good wine that I drank was a wine uh, which existed in Germany, a sweet wine, not from Germany, but uh, stored in Germany of 1727. And it was a fantastic wine. So uh, uh, the, the, the story of this wine is that it was kept in uh, barrels. And you know what is the evaporation? We say the, the, the part for the angels, you know. Uh, and um, this, this uh, barrel uh, was refilled with wine of another barrel of, seven, of 1727. So all was from 1727. And when there was no more barrel, uh, then they put the, the remaining barrel in bottles and have drank this uh, this wine it was incredible 
so sweet, so perfect, incredible. This, this sounds very exciting to me. Um, yeah. I have uh, one question. Yeah. So uh, one thing that comes to my mind, if you compare the old wines from 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, did the wine styles change or did the old wines try uh, taste somewhat the same? I think uh, that the, the people who make good wine uh, work constantly well. So I mean, there is no different. So a Chateau Latour made today has a chance to grow uh, in age exactly as the Chateau Latour of the 19th century. Even if the methods are not the same, techniques are better now, I think the, the, the men at that time, they had the good, the good reactions, the good choices. They were able to make good wines at, at that time. Things have changed, of course, but I think the good, good winemakers are always, always the same. What has changed is the te temperatures hmm? and also the degree of alcohol uh, in, in the wines, because when you drink a, a Bordeaux of the 19th century, it is 11 degrees, 10 to 11 degrees. When you drink a, a, a Bordeaux today, it's uh, between 13 and, and 14 and a half. So it is not the same thing because we tend to have red wines with, which go in the direction of port wine instead of being light wines. But I trust that uh, along the story, uh, the, the, the people who work well, work well. And what is positive is that regions that were not credible, uh, now they make good wine. That is the improvement because people trust in them, in their uh, way to, to work wine. And that is a positive effect. The, the, for example, the wines of Languedoc, Languedoc in France and the south of France, they are 10 times better than they were before because nobody cared They, they made a wine to, to have something which excites your mind, but not to be a great wine. Now they try to make great wine. Hmm? Oh, this is very cool because right now I am uh, in the Cévennes <laughs> next yes. to Montpellier. And so I will hmm. uh, heavily try some wines uh, during the week yeah. I am here. Um, but yeah. that's, that's not the point of today. Um, I want to find out a bit about the fascination for old wines, because I see that this is um, a big topic in France. It is a big topic yeah. in Italy. It was yeah. a big topic in Germany, but I think this tradition of collecting wines and of being fascinated, of having old, uh, how do you say in French, old cave, <laughs> old, yeah, old wine yeah. caves, this has some, somehow stopped in my own country. And um, maybe you can uh, just tell me a bit about the, the cultural aspect of uh, collecting and uh, drinking fine wines and old rare wines. Yes, you know, you know, uh, Uh, you, you must understand something, which is, if I collect old wines, it is not because they are old, it is because they are better. So, this is very important. You see, for me, for me, the life of a wine has no limit. And a wine improves 
improves every year. So instead of, you know, I think that Robert Parker did a bad thing for wine because he talked about a plateau of maturity. And after the plateau of maturity, there was a, decline, a collapse, yes. a <laughs> decline, a decline and a collapse, which is completely, completely uh, against the evidence. For example, I have drunk two days ago a Corton, a Grand Cru uh, of Bourgogne uh, of 1919. This, this wine, as never would have never been as great as it was when I opened it, and it has 102 years. So uh, my vision of wine is that a, a wine improves, and if I collect old wine, it is not because they are old, because they improve, and this is very important. And not many people uh, make the same. Uh, for me, the wine has no limit in time. The limit is created by the death of the cork. When the cork does not play its role, the, the, the wine will, will die because it will evaporate very quickly and it, it will die. If there is no problem with the cork, a, a wine should last forever. Of course, as, as for human being, you can break your leg, a wine can have an accident. So this exists, but all in all, I see, you know, for example, I will tell you, my best ever Lafitte, I have drunk probably 80 different vintages of Lafitte. My best Lafitte, Lafitte is 1844. You can see that. My best Ikem, my best Ikem is 1861. The best that I have drunk, I have drunk more than 100 different years of Ikem, and the best is 1861. So this is not due to the fact that the people at that time worked better. It is due by the improvement given by age. This is very important. Hmm? Mm -hmm. And it's why I, I concentrate my, and I'll tell you a story about champagne, for example. In my family, people said a champagne must be drunk in the first 10 years, because after that, it's no more good. So I, I have lived with that, that idea. And one day I discovered old champagne. And my best ever uh, champagne is the Heidsick 1907. So it is a fact that age, age improves wine and age gives complexity. And I will give you a, a, a comparison that you will understand easily. Uh, a young wine is like a flint. A flint, it is a, a, a stone which has, uh, which is uh, with asperities, you see? And an old wine is a pebble because the pebble is round and all, all is completely designed to, to be coherent and to work together. And so there is in old wine something that uh, do not exist. For example, when I see that uh, people give, uh, let's say for Latour 209, uh, 100 points. Hmm? So how much should I give to Latour 1928? I should give 400 points. You see what I mean? Because there is no, so, 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 
the Latour 209 is a dwarf, dwarf compared to Latour 1928. So the, the, if there, there is now people who consider old wine, it is because they have discovered that the life of a wine has no limit. And I will tell you something. Today, many people who criticized old wines because they did not know, they said a wine of 50, 50 years is dead. But can you imagine that today, people who open a, let's say, Aubryon uh, 1971, which has 50, it is so lively and so good. You see what I mean? So people discover today that a wine of 50 years is a wine in, in a full maturity and in a state of perfection. So, you know, we have all had false consideration about old wine. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Robert Parker uh, make popular the idea of a decline is a complete uh, fault uh, for, for, for old wines. Yeah, I mean, it's basically marketing driven because as winery storing all the yes. old wines becomes yeah. very, very expensive and you need lots yeah, of yeah. space. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think this is, this is the main reason for it. Um, if, you, if you look at the, uh, of, at the interest uh, for old wines, is mm. most of it um, driven like yours that you really want to try them and to taste them? Or do most people see them as an investment option for their money? Mm. Um, I would say if you want to, to, um, to invest, invest in young and let them uh, grow, grow in age. Because I think that if you buy today a 1900 Lafitte, the price that you will pay for this will not increase. Uh, in 20 years, it will be probably the same, uh, which is a contrary. Young. A young which grows old uh, will It will be a better investment that, than to buy an old, uh, for example, the price of very old decam has not so increased, not so increased. Now, uh, the, the, you know, I make dinners with my, my wines. I've, I've made 255 dinners of old wines. The people who come who pay to, to this dinner, it is because they want to know. And there is a real demand to know What is, what is in a Aubryon 28? What is in a Mouton 45? What is in a Ikem 21? That, that is what people want to know. They, they, they are curious and they want to discover. And there is something very uh, interesting in the, the, the market of wine. In the beginning of the years 2000, there was a big speculation. So people, they, 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 they bought the best for speculation. So they bought and they sold two years later and they had gained 30%. That is a good investment. Hmm? But today the, the world of very old wines has changed because people, they drink. And in Asia, you have many, many, many people who drink. So for rare wines like, like Burgundy, which have a production very limited, 
the price increase not due to speculation, but because the wines are drunk. Mm -hmm. And it changes the, the image of the market. Ah, so we, we don't have so many wines in uh, speculation collections, but uh, actually the amount of available wine reduces from year to year to yeah. year because the old wines yeah. get drunk. Exactly. Take, take, for example, the Domaine Leroy. Uh, they, they, they have prices which are completely crazy today because they are drunk and so the, the rare bottles. So take, for example, the, the Hermitage uh, Cuvée Catelin of Chave. Uh, the production is, is some hundreds and not 1,000, uh, under 1,000. The prices explode because the wines are drunk. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, we seem to run into the same problem we do with uh, fossil fuels, because old wines are, in a sense, an unrenewable resource. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, yes. so would you say it is actually good that we talk about this topic and that we uh, make more people interested in it? Yeah, the, the wines have to be drunk. The, the, the wines are made to, to be drunk. You know, collection of wine is something that you destroy when you use it. So a jewel, you can see it for decades. <laughs> a, a wine, when you open it, it's finished. So, so you destroy, it's a collection that you, you, you destroy. Just a short interruption, because I want to talk directly to you who are listening to this podcast. I'm Diego. I'm the host of this podcast, obviously. What you maybe do not know is that I'm also active as wine marketing consultant for wineries, and I'm specialized in small and medium-sized family wineries that try to figure out their strategic positioning. This often occurs when the winery faces a generational change, so it's ahead of them or they just did it, and the new owners try to find their identity and the winery's identity. The other scenario where my help is often asked is when wineries change their market, so for example from producing bulk wine to bottling wine. Strategic positioning, I can explain this best on my own podcast. So there are many of wine podcasts, mostly talking about food pairing and stuff. There's one podcast for wine professionals talking about how to make money in the wine industry. This is mine and this is very special. So this leads to platforms like Wine Plus. It's 230,000 members. 30,000 of them are professionals working together with me or Vitisphere, the main French medium for wine growing, working together with me, or IVES, the worldwide corporation of wine research institutes, working together with me because of my strategic positioning. But this is also possible for wineries. But when I look around, most of the wineries I see, they have a me too positioning, meaning look at me, I also do organic wine, or I also do vegan wine, or I also have a vineyard in this area, or I also produce orange wine, or what have you. So this is positioning, but it's not good. Let me tell you the story of one of my customers. It's Terra Preta Weingut Huppert, meaning Terra Preta Winery Huppert. And so together we positioned them as the only winery that has its brand centered around the use of Terra Preta. Why is this important? Because if you check this stuff out, It has a huge community on YouTube. You can buy it in grocery stores. Uh, television channels are reporting about it. Joe Rogan podcast is reporting about it. And 
no winemaker got the idea to use it as his strategic positioning. So instead of saying, yeah, I'm organic winery Huppert, we can say I'm Terra Preta winery Huppert. This is good strategic positioning and I consulted them and I helped them to change their whole brand around this new identity. And the effect of it is that they now can sell their wine where no other winery is selling because they are part of the Terra Preta community from now on. And if you want to learn how strategic positioning can help you grow your business and stabilize your income, do not hesitate to contact me. I do my consulting locally because I travel the wine world a lot, but also online via Zoom or video conferences. And so just contact me and we can talk about what is possible. But you know, when I began uh, collecting old wine, there were still wines of the first half of the 19th century. There are no more today. All, all has been drunk, uh, or dead or, or drunk. So, so this collection will, will grow with, with uh, time. So you see, the, the second half of the 19th century will disappear in, in the 30 coming years. And then you will have uh, another uh, other decades which will, which will become old, you see. So it can be a revolving uh, process. You see what I mean? Hmm? Mm. Some, so some, in that sense, it, it is very important to, to get people interested in uh, collecting old wines so that we have enough stock <laughs> for the next generation yeah, yeah, yeah. to drink them. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, there is, there is something uh, which is interesting. Do you know why there are so many wines of the great years in auctions? And there is one reason, I will explain to you. You have a cellar with many, many great wines. And for example, you have a friend who will come to your home and you, you are in the mood to say, I will open a Petrus fine, okay? Or you like your friend, but you go in the cellar and you say, oh, nine, uh, 1982, no, 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 it, no it not, it's not the day. 1961, no, no, it's not the day. So you take a, a 1984, which is a rather small year, and so you keep, you keep in your, in your uh, cellar the great years. And when you die in auctions, the one that you have not drunk will, will appear in, in auctions. And it's right, because I was surprised that always what is in auction are the good years. But it is because they were not drunk. People have kept them, they had them, they have kept them, and then they die. And then it comes in, in auction. Hmm? Um, so uh, does this mean that um, because of increased uh, uh, demand for the, for the other uh, years that were not so good they are actually more valuable in a sense because they are more rare than the best uh, years it is true that a year which was which was named a weak year with time becomes better for example if you take petrus 74 74 is a rather weak year but for Petrus, it is a great wine. And so you will have, you will have a real pleasure with, with so-called weak years uh, for the great wines, of course, because uh, not great wines don't age as, as well as uh, great wines. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you said you do your wine dinners. Uh, how do I have to imagine those dinners? What's going on there? So first of all, the, the people, so imagine you have a table of 10 and you will have 10 to 11 wines to share together. And I tell them at the first minute, what you're going to do is a dinner, not a tasting. When you make a tasting, for example, if you make a, a vertical of, uh, let's say, a Musini, you compare wine to wine to, to, to know which one was the better. No. What I do, I make a gastronomic dinner, and the menu is made for my wines. And the f I give you a format to, to Champagne, to Whites, to Bordeaux, to Burgundy or Rhone, and to Licorous Wine. So, and the menu is made in order that all that is logic. And in the two of a, a category, for example, to Bordeaux, I will put a very old and a rather old, for example, a 70 and a 28. If I have a burgundy, I will put one of the 50s and one of the 1910 something. So in order that there is no fight, there is no fight. And at the end of the dinner, I let people vote. But if you vote, uh, a, What is the value of a vote of a champagne better than a sweet wine? That, there is no sense. They vote for the pleasure, the pleasure that they had. And it is very, very instructive to, to see that uh, uh, they are able to say, and I have the votes of, in all my dinners. And there is something which is very interesting. We have all different tasters. And that is very interesting. It, it, you know, imagine that one, the maximum that I had was that in a dinner in where there were 12 wines, there were nine wines which were voted as first. Incredible. Normally, normally there are some wines which are clearly above the others. But so it shows one thing, we have all of us different uh, palettes. So what pleases me will not probably not please you and, and so on. So it is very interesting. And my dinners are made for pleasure. You must take pleasure. So you drink very rare bottles. Uh, I've made uh, this uh, last uh, Friday a dinner in which I had a champagne of 1820, which is probably the oldest in the world. I had uh, a Richbourg Domaine de la Romane Conti 37, which was absolutely fantastic. So I had, uh, I had a, a Montrose 1918, so 103 years. Uh, so these bottles are difficult to find. I have them in my cellar, and I want that people take advantage of what I have collected to, to make their own image on old wines. Hmm? So that's interesting. Your dinners are actually one of the rare places in the world where the beverage is older than the participants. Um, <laughs> in, in most cases, I think. Yeah. Um, this, this, uh, this, I would say, hobby of, um, of uh, tasting those old wines, um, this seems to be a quite uh, cost expensive hobby so who is the typical uh, person that uh, that comes to your dinners what kind of people are those mm. the, the, i would say that generally 
uh, it, it is people who are 40 to 50 who have a very good income, a small, a small company that they founded, or they have their lawyers, or so, and they have no time to buy wine. So they have no seller, but they want to know what, what is a Aubryon 28. They want to know what is a Mouton 61. And they want, they want to know that because they have no time to spend uh, to, to buy in auction and to know which, which, what has to be avoided and so on. So the, the general uh, profile is people who are rather successful and who want to know what is, what is in, in, in those wines. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if, for example, uh, we now address younger persons who have not made their fortune yet, um, but who might be also interested in um, starting to uh, dive into this world of wine, um, yeah. how, how could one start uh, the own journey when I'm not 50 yet and I'm not wealthy yet? Yeah, I have the answer. You know, I created uh, what I call the Academy for Unseen Twines. And for me, it is benevolent because I don't try to make any profit. Uh, imagine, it, I will have a, a meeting of this Academy on the 2nd of December. We, we, we will be 34. We will have 45 wines. We will split the persons and the ones in three groups and for uh, a very small amount of money, you will have access in one dinner to 15 old wines. This is, this is the way. Uh, do you know how I, I had the idea of this academy? Uh, to, to let to, so I'm an industrial person and I was, I was absolutely not known by anyone in the world of wine. To, to, uh, to be known, I, I made an exposition of uh, many bottles that I have drunk. And people went and said, you have, you have drunk all that? Yes, I have drunk all that. And one man came and told me, you know, in my cellar, I have a Aubryon 49, and I will die with this bottle. And I said, but your bottle must be drunk. And he answered to me, I know no one with whom to share. And I have the idea, I will create a structure in which people share together their bottles. And this is the academy. So it's for people who have not, not a lot of money, it is very accessible. I'll give you the price because it is always interesting. If you come with an old wine, you pay 150 euro to share the bottles of the others and for the menu. If you have no bottle of wine, you pay 260 uh, euro. So to have access to 15 old wines in one uh, dinner for 260 euro, I think nobody is able to do that. You see? This, so, is, this is a very, very good offering. Um, what do you define as old bottle in that case? So uh, I will tell you, uh, for me, as we are in 21, Champagne, it is before 91. Hmm? and white wine the same, for red wine before 71, hmm? and for uh, liquorous before 61. So 13 to 60 years, 30 to yeah. 60 years, depending on the variety. Yeah. Okay, okay, exactly. Cool. 
this is this is very interesting um and if people want to take part uh, or become part of your academy uh, how can they do it so i decided that i don't ask any annual uh, annual uh, registration i don't uh, uh, say a beacon member no you you write to me you have seen in my blog or in my uh, website that there will be an event you write to me you say okay we, you you make all what has to be done it must be free it is like a, like when you go to a restaurant you, you are not a member you, you don't pay an annual fee you go you go and you so with me you you come and you drink you see mm -hmm. Um, do the meetings always take pl place in Paris? Yes, you, you know, my cellar is near Paris, so uh, I prefer to, to do it near my cellar because uh, transportation of wine my stay in a different uh, place. It will increase the costs uh, by all the logistic uh, things. So I prefer to do it in the room. Of course, when, when, for example, for my dinners, if I have a full table, I can do a dinner everywhere. You see, I've met, for example, for a Chinese man, two dinners in Beijing uh, because he asked me to do uh, two, two dinners. I've met dinners in London because I was asked to do, but I never pro make prospection. I need a full table. For my dinners, you, you can, if you want to come alone, you come. But if I go, if I make it in Germany or everywhere, uh, I asked for a full table. Okay, I, yeah. I cannot make the promotion uh, for, for for other other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally understand that. Um, so let's let's uh, go a bit into the topic of food pairing. Um, what yeah. what is good food pairing for old wine? <laughs> so well, I work with the chef, and and I'm very demanding, and uh, they accept uh, my demands. For an old wine, the, the dish must be readable, must have no, no, it, it should never be a firework of uh, tasters. It must be a constant taste, logic taste, because the old wine wants that, wants no break in the tasters that accompany. I will, I will give, give you a story for Romani Conti. I put now always uh, poached foie gras because there is a sweetness in a poached foie gras, you see, which is so calm that for the Romani Conti, all the tasters of Romani Conti will, will be extremely enlightened. For example, uh, for Petrus, <laughs> I put always, because I love that, due to the, to the characteristic of Petrus, uh, I put red, red mullet. Red mullet uh, cooked with a sauce for red wine. Okay? And it works uh, extremely well. So, readable dishes. That is, for me, the, the, the key. Readable. And for sweet wine, I will tell you that, uh, for example, if I put anikem, I will uh, make dishes in two directions. First is Stilton, which is the cheese which works the best with uh, Ikem. And then a dessert uh, about mango. 
because mango is a fruit which is completely in the direction, in the line of Ikem. So the, the, the dishes can be very com complex, but the tasters must be completely coherent, must go together. Never a break, never a break in the taster, and never addition of, of not compatible uh, tasters. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so uh, one rather fringe question. Uh, what would you recommend to vegetarians listening? Uh, you, can, you can cook uh, vegetables extremely well. And you have someone in Paris who, who is able to do that. It's Alain Passard, who has three stars. He was one of the, uh, the men who put away uh, uh, meat and, and who cooked vegetables. If you cook them with the, the same rules, so all must be coherent, then it works very well. That it works very well. Hmm? Okay, yeah, I ask that because I happen to, <laughs> to chose a vegetarian life some years before. Yes. And so for me, this is very, very interesting because um, I, uh, when, when I was trained as winemaker 10 years before, um, yeah. my, uh, my master, like the person who trained me, the winemaker, he said, um, Diego, yeah, we are in Rheingau area. We are all about Riesling. Yeah. It must be sold young because we don't have so much storage place and cash flow and blah, 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 blah. But the one thing you really need to know is the old wines is the good one. And uh, so he gave me those old wines from Rheingau area and I mm. immediately fell in love um, till this day. I'm, I'm a fan of old wine. Um, not as old as uh, you told me, but uh, like everything that starts from like 10 years. This is where it gets interesting to me. And uh, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping to increase my knowledge of old wine in the same way you yeah. do. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, two things. Um, the one thing is um, you mention many of the very, very famous names, like the famous yeah. chateaus. Um, what yeah. about the old wines of not so famous wineries? If you, if you look at uh, all the list of my 255 dinner, you will see that there is always what I call foot soldiers. Foot soldiers, it, they, it is the, 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 the soldiers who, who, who were in, in front, you see. So I love to show that not famous old wine can also perform. For example, in the dinner, there was a wine of Romani Conti, but I had put a, a Corton 1919 of an obscure uh, merchant. And it was voted as the second, second wine of the dinner. And there were so many huge wines. So I'm completely uh, positive about wines which deserve, uh, deserve to be drunk. If they are made, and for, for me, for example, I have bought many, many not, not, not famed wines of 28 and 29, because the years were so great that even second hand, uh, not second hand, but second level uh, wines performed wonderfully. So for example, one of the great success of 1928 in Bordeaux is Chateau Pougeot. Pujo is a Mouly and Medoc, and it is not a famous wine, but it was fantastic, fantastic. 
So I, I'm not obsessed, but uh, of course, if people pay, I, I want that they have their their uh, name uh, dropping. <laughs> name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I try always to have foot soldiers in in my dinner because they they deserve to be drunk also. Yes. I, I absolutely agree. And uh, the other thing I would like to know is um, your view on wines from other countries. Uh, what were the old wines from, let's say, Germany, Italy, Spain that you have tried that really uh, surprised you? Uh, you know, you must know that uh, the availability of uh, cellars is in France. Uh, you have much many more uh, many more uh, old wines in France than in other uh, regions. So, for example, <laughs> you know, uh, when I go in Italy uh, and they ask me, uh, "Do you like uh, our old wines?" I say, "Oh, I have probably drunk more old wines uh, of Italy than you have." And they look at me, "Oh, oh is it possible?" I say, "Yes, I have drunk a 1780 wine of the uh, Vesuve, uh, the Vesuve." Uh, ill, Vesuvio hmm? ill, and you know I, I have drunk. So, for example, I have drunk some Barolos of 1936 and so on. But the, the you know, Italy, I've drunk all, but I don't have so so many in uh, in my cellar. Spain, I have some old wines, but. Uh, except the Vega Sicilia, which is the, the, the greatest uh, Spanish. I've not studied that much. Uh, for Germany, uh, I have some very, you have in Germany so, so incredible sweet wines, which are so fantastic, Mosel wines. They are absolutely fantastic. So uh, when I have the occasion, I drink them. I'm not against them, but Except, except uh, the sweet wines that I collect from, from Hungary, Cyprus, uh, Spain, the uh, south of Spain, Sicily, Sicily, and so on. Except the sweet wines that I collect everywhere uh, for red and, and, and white. Uh, uh, they are at my door, you see what I mean, the, the French one. Mm. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, you, you, you just said that uh, the availability of sellers is very rare in the rest of the world compared to France. So this... No, there, there are people who have great sellers. For example, one of the greatest uh, uh, sellers in the world is a, a Brazilian. Brazilian was a... But, but uh, the... the, the The tradition of, of having old cellars, no, you know, in Scotland, you have very old cellar. In Scotland, they, they collected and they have probably older ones than, than in France. But uh, it, it is not so common than, uh, as, as in France. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that. And um, my question would be, uh, from your opinion, what would have to change, what have to happen to uh, get more people in more countries interested in starting their own sellers. I mean, if we start today in one or 200 years, there will be people like you, supposedly yeah, yeah. all survive the climate yeah. and stuff. But um, yeah. we have to start this now. What, what has to happen uh, for more people to get interested in this topic? Uh, first of all, you must have sellers. 
Uh, that's uh, the, the, the key key factor. So you need, first of all, this, to decide to, to, to make a seller, so a physical, uh, a physical. Uh, we have, for example, in Paris, you have common sellers, so people, uh, people store for you and you have your, your own, own seller. So you can do that in big cities like uh, Paris and probably, uh, but first of all, you, you must create your seller. And then you must buy what you would like to drink. Because I think it is, you will go further uh, collecting what you want to drink than collecting what would gain value. You see what I mean? My, my, my strategy was to buy what I want to drink, not buy what, because you know, I must, in 50 years, I've not sold any bottle, not sold any bottle. So all what I have, uh, all what I have bought remains in my cellar and must be drunk. Hmm? So oh, I, I imagine your cellar must be quite big then. Yes, it is big. <laughs> you can imagine. Uh, okay. To, to an, an idea of uh, the, the number of lines of my cellar, a line can have one to 12, 12 bottles, hmm? it exceeds 10,000 lines. Can you imagine that? Hmm? Do you have children? Yes, I have three children. Okay, and, uh, so my, the lineage will go on. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my son will, uh, will, will, he will do what he wants. The, the cellar will uh, have an evolution due to what he wants. Hmm? Okay, so um, now let's let's talk a bit about the perfect wine cellar. I mean, uh, there are there are some aspects like temperature, humidity, and uh, also you have different materials that you can work with. Yeah, uh, you yeah. can. Um, so that, that is one question. What generally makes a good wine cellar? But also, um, you have this hobby for, for like 50 years now. And I think you spend a lot of time in your wine cellar. Maybe there's some interior you say, okay, you need a sofa, you need a table, you need something to enjoy <laughs> the time with your wines. What did you learn about what makes a perfect wine cellar? You know, you, you have two types of cellar, two completely different types of cellar. One is natural, so if you have heavy, heavy walls and under the ground, you can you can keep a cellar with no no come on the climate climatization. So you see what I mean. So hmm? so there is one type. The other for my my big cellar, my big cellar, all is uh, controlled by machines. So it is not a natural cellar. It is a, uh, and there are people who want to show their cellar. I want to hide to hide my cellar mm -hmm. because for security reasons. So I took all the all the most efficient uh, material to make the cellar, but no show. No show. It is a, a cellar made for storage with a completely controlled uh, humidity and temperature, and it works. It works very well. Hmm? I love to wonder. I, I love to wander in my cellar because uh, I see in the in, in the different places there are so many incredible bottles. 
but it is not made for a show. It is made to that the, the bottles are in the perfect conditions. Mm? And uh, what changes did you make to the interior of your cellar in the last, let's say, 20, 30 years? So uh, what improvements look, did you make? Yeah, yeah. Look, in, in, I built my, my house uh, so, uh, in uh, 38 years ago. And I made a, made a cellar in, in the house. But mm. it is such a tiny cellar, tiny compared to what it is now. How could I have not programmed a big cellar? So when, when I reached the size, the, the, the complete size, I put uh, wines in some of my companies. I used places of my companies to put, uh, to put wine. And then at one moment, I sold my company. So uh, I had to have a, a, a new, new seller. I did it in a, another company that I had. And at one moment, I said, stop. And then I bought a building in which I created a real, really great, great seller. Mm -hmm. So there were improvements. But for me, the, 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 the way of uh, storing is very clear. You, you have a, a case should, should have the ability to uh, have 24 bottles hmm? uh, with one, one line and the, the line behind. So when you have a, you can see this bottle, but you don't see what is behind. Hmm? You see? And it must be solid, not use this. Uh, Uh, steel, steel things, forms like that, because when you, when you move one bottle, you move everything. No, it must be solid, I can. And do, do, of course, do, do what you feel. Uh, if you want to create your own cellar, do what you feel. Some people like to receive people in their cellar. I, I don't do it. I, I have a room, special room, but it, it is outside the, the, the cellar. Um, I have another topic that really comes to mind when we talk about those old wines. And this is the topic of faked wine. Yes. <laughs> what, what do you think? How many faked bottles did you already have? You, you know, no, nobody knows. No, nobody knows. But I think I have the chance to have uh, uh, begun my cellar at a period in which we had no concern on, on, on fakes. Uh, The fakes appeared, I think, in the 90s. Uh, in the 90s, uh, you, you, and it grew and grew and grew. I've changed my way of buying. For example, I, I don't buy reconditioned bottles because you have a new label, you have a new capsule, so you cannot. I, I, I didn't see get this one. Reconditions bottle. What, what is it? Recondition. So, for example, uh, imagine you you have you have old old bottle. The field the the, the the some there was evaporation. You send your wines to the chateau. The chateau takes one bottle to sacrifice to to make the levels in the other. Yes. And they put new label, they put a new capsule for each button that is uh, kept. Ah, and these so, are most prone to be faked. And, you know, they are true if, if you were in the, but when you don't know what happened, 
you can uh, you can think it is a fake. So I never buy now reconditioned uh, butter. And for another reason, you don't know what was the previous level. If it is reconditioned, imagine a, a bottle which has lost one fifth of its volume, and then which has a, a, a perfect level. Uh, if you don't know what was uh, previously, I don't buy. I don't buy. So after. I, I buy only bottles which, ha which ha have had a life. You see what I mean? A life. And I look at them, if uh, they, uh, they please me, okay, I buy. Hmm? Mm -hmm. So I've changed my, my really changed my, my way of buying. I prefer a, a bottle which has suffered than a bottle which is perfectly clean. Hmm? I mean, there are there are really some stories of this guy Rudy Kanawan. Yeah, Rudy Kanawan. And, yes, and yes. It, it is said that his wines actually they taste good. <laughs> like yes, because he, he was clever. He was clever, and you must know something. Everybody can be fooled. Because if if there is a fake that is served by someone to me, if I am in a climate of uh, trust, I trust him. So I, I don't consider that it could be a fake. So I drink it, I say, ah, it's fine, so it's okay. Oh, it yeah, is I mean, if you try it for the first time, how would you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so um, you can, everybody can be fooled. So I think that in my cellar, the probability of fake is very small, but I cannot say I have no, I have no fakes. No, I've put certainly... Yeah, I mean I mean, in, in somehow, um, if, of course, if you are a collector, it is sad uh, if you find out that you have bought fake uh, wines. Mm -hmm. But in, in, in another way, you can also look at it as part of wine culture. I mean, these bottles are there. People make their money yeah. with it. It is part of the wine world. And it's, it's, a, it's quite uh, yes, a fascinating uh, part yeah. of the wine world, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But the, those people are highly skilled. <laughs> you can you yeah, can yeah. give them some respect for what they do, actually, because they really yes, know their business. Yeah, you can you can uh, think that, or you can think also that the the, the palate of a human being is not a very perfect uh, tool. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, I would like to end the conversation now. It was yeah. lots of fun and I have tons of more uh, questions for you. Uh, but yeah. uh, with respect of your time, you need to go now. Um, yeah. Maybe we will have another conversation uh, later or we can repeat this next year or something like this. Uh, it's, it's a very, very interesting topic to me. And I hope that we can uh, get to know each other in reality and maybe uh, me and my wife will visit one of your wine dinners this would be perfect. yes <laughs> thank you and it was a pleasure to talk to you thank you Bye. yeah thank you thank you and i think the getting the message out and uh, motivating people to start their own collections is uh, is a very important thing to do yes thank you bye Conversations like these are especially important in times where collecting rare wines or where collecting aged wines is merely a topic of financial investments and the whole tradition of having a family seller in your house um, is fading away, at least in my country, in Germany. I know that it is still active in some other countries, but in general, I would say uh, this tradition is on the edge of 
leaving the world as far as I understand it. And I want to improve this situation by making more people interested in aged wines and not just the aged wines of the blue chip wineries, but also the aged wines of small family owned businesses of small wineries, because they can be amazing as well. And of course, way cheaper. So go ahead and ask your winemaker of choice if he has some old wines left and enjoy them together. Thanks for listening.